from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 7, Mothra. G-fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherschel. And today we will be talking about 1961's Mothra, which in many ways is as important a classic in the Toho kaiju filmography as the original Gojira. And this is great for me because I really am glad that we got to the 60s finally and these wonderful 60s films. They're some of my favorite ones. This is really a, an amazing time in uh, kaiju film history, really. It was an amazing time for Toho and Tokusatsu in general. I mean, this is the era at which Toho was really at its peak with their special effects and fantasy and science fiction films. Our related topic for this episode is the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan. All right, Brian, for part one of the podcast, we'll be doing a description of the film. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Mothra, or Mosra, is worshipped as a god by the inhabitants of Infant Island. This film never confirms if she is or is simply a creature. Unlike Toho's previous kaiju, or giant monsters in general, Mothra is a benevolent, though single-minded creature who only uses destruction while searching for her tiny twin priestesses, aka the Shobajin. Zen Fukuda is a reporter for a Japanese newspaper and the Shobajin's most outspoken proponent. He's always advocating for the fairy's freedom with his writing and actions. Miji Hanamura, a photographer for the same newspaper, usually tags along with Zen and often appears to temper his tenacity with her common sense. Dr. Shinichi Chujo is a linguist and anthropologist who has studied the culture and languages of the islands and also sympathizes with Mothra. Clark Nelson is a crooked, greedy businessman and treasure hunter from Relisica. He is motivated by profit and disregards the well-being of others. The kaiju and human plot lines are unified, with nearly all human actions having to do with Mothra and the Shobajin. As Mothra nears Japan, the SDF attacks her with napalm, which has no effect. While in Japan, the SDF ground forces are ineffective against her. Relisican forces respond by sending a nuclear-powered heat ray cannon, which sets her cocoon on fire, but also has no effect. While in Newkirk City, she is bombarded by Relisican artillery, but the defenses don't work. The issue is resolved when the hieroglyph for Mothra is drawn onto an airport runway and church bells playing the same tune sung by the tiny twins is played. Our protagonists return the fairies to Mothra and she flies home to Infant Island. As is the trademark of screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa, this is a simple but multifaceted story. Sekizawa was given a more complex story treatment based on a serialized novel that he simplified in order to make it more entertaining, in his opinion. This was one of Toho's first tokusatsu films when they hit their stride in the 60s, so production values are high and the effects look very good. Tsuburaya once again employed his usual techniques, suitmation, miniatures, puppetry, etc., 
but he had to implement them in new ways to bring the insect kaiju Mothra to life. For instance, the caterpillar was created using either one of several puppets or a massive suit controlled by several stunt actors. The adult Mothra was one of three puppets used depending on the needs of the scene. The kaiju Mothra, especially in this film, ranks as one of his best realized creations. There's also great care taken to bring the Shobajin to life using composite shots, dolls, and oversized sets, among other things. This was the second kaiju film written by Shinichi Sakizawa. His first was 1958's Varan the Unbelievable, so the tone is light, fun, and subtly satirical. There's some physical humor, but it never goes into full slapstick. Regardless, the events of the film are given some gravity and treated seriously. The film has a strong fantasy feel, compared to the more grounded kaiju films of the 1950s. The most experimental thing about this film is the light tone and Sekizawa's changing of the kaiju film formula. The human plot has all the funny parts, which makes the kaiju plot seem more serious. This film greatly expanded the style of kaiju films by being fun and entertaining. Although this isn't a Godzilla film, it had significant effect on the Showa series of Godzilla films. Like Rodan, the film was intended for the burgeoning kaiju film audience, but by making Mothra beautiful, benevolent, and even maternal, Ishiro Honda and company hoped to expand the audience and attract female moviegoers. Mothra sold over 9 million tickets, grossing 281,250,000 yen, which was a tremendous success. Mothra is one of the most popular kaiju in the entire kaiju genre. Mothra was edited before being released stateside by Columbia Pictures. Around 10 minutes of footage was edited out of the film, and some other scenes were rearranged. These changes are minor, although much of the religious imagery from the final scenes was cut. The film sets up a conflict between Mothra and the natural world versus the flawed, modern human society. The film portrays Japan dealing with pressure from the United States and the Soviet Union in the form of the fictional country Rulisica. The post-nuclear devastation of Infant Island expresses a potent anti-nuclear sentiment. There's a lot of time spent in the newsrooms of Japanese newspapers and depictions of the power of the press. Mirroring 1933's King Kong, the film denounces the exploitation of exotic beings. It also explores Japan's relation with foreign powers via Relisica, delves into religion and spirituality through the faith of the Infant Island natives, and presents a tenacious quest for truth, as exemplified by Zen and Mishi. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is our opinion and discussion section of the film. And like I said, this is a our first film of the 1960s, and it's a really big change in between the 50s and the 60s in the Godzilla and Toho movie monster series because we we go from really black and white serious things and then Rodan we get a color very serious film and now we are finally getting a more entertaining film that really broke the mold in in, in a lot of ways I would even say that Sekizawa single-handedly created the sort of tone and formula and all that that people outside of the fandom tend to associate with kaiju movies, regardless of which country that they, that they come from. I mean, yes, the original Gojira is an icon and always will be, and it's a very important film and always will be, but it's 
not the the kind of movie that people tend to associate with giant monsters. They tend to think of them as being more lighthearted and fun sort of entertainment. And you can tell that there's a big change in tone right from the very, very beginning. It's evident by the building where, it's, I think it's a hospital, where the guys are being examined for nuclear effects and exposure. The reporters all are outside and they're being stopped from coming in. The way that the one of the reporters complains to the guys blocking them, and he was like, I made it, y'all. And it was hilarious. He was like, let us in. <laughs> and I could immediately tell there was a big, big shift away from the seriousness. Another, another big one was the fact that when they examined the guys for nuclear exposure, you know, a la Lucky Dragon number five kind of thing, it ends up not being a Lucky Dragon number five. And they don't have any radiation on them and they're fine. But then that one funny kind of guy that's with them, like the shorter guy, I think it was the part where he mentions the, yeah, the natives. I think it was the part where he mentioned the natives or something, but he was, but he made that sort of funny, that part where he was like, oh no. <laughs> and like, it's just, you can tell. And then of course our, our famous reporter. Zen. Yeah. Our famous reporter, Zen. He's the snapping turtle, as yeah, they call him, because he never lets there. go of a story. Yeah, he's in there and he's not even supposed to be there. He, he breaks up the whole thing by reporting on it. And so it, it, you, you mentioned, you know, that Zen being there and he's not supposed to be there. You could almost believe that Zen would be this kind of buffoonish sort of character you're not supposed to take seriously, which is the way he the way he you know conducts himself he kind of comes across like that but then he's also nicknamed snapping turtle or bulldog if you watch the uh, english version so you get this very interesting dichotomy he is, he seems like a goofball but you take him seriously yeah and the things he does are are a lot of the times are serious actions but it's funny the way he just tackles them sometimes it's it's sort of like a just a small trail of amusement that just goes through a whole lot of the movie and it's not like the slapsticky it's not a long series of shenanigans. No, it's 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 more subtle, and I think I think that actually does the movie a lot of favors. Takashi Shimura is in it as the guy who's in charge of all the reporters, and he even gets to make a couple of funny statements. I love Takashi Shimura's editor in this. He's he's actually really really funny. When I was rewatching this movie most recently, I've actually made a note to myself that he reminds me a lot of J. Jonah Jameson from the Spider-Man comics and movies. He's that kind of blustery sort of a guy, which is an interesting departure for him when, you know, if you if you look at Mr. Shimura's filmography, I mean, he was playing a very serious scientist in Gojira and, you know, had this heartbreaking role in Akiru and all that. And here he is actually kind of cutting loose and having a bit of fun. Yeah, it's a good departure. There's just a lot of other little amusing things, even towards the beginning, where it's like Koizumi's character is hiding behind the newspaper, and then once he takes the newspaper down, it's found that he that he wasn't shaved. And, and then uh, the mouse get, getting the mouse into the couch great. and scaring them, and then getting into his clothes. And it just goes on and on. I mean, it's, it's written very well, and it's a, it's a different tone. And, and you get to put the funny things into the human plot, and then that makes the stuff going on with the monsters seem more serious. Well, and the thing that's also great about it is that the humor is not overdone. I mean, it would have been very easy to kind of, to get over the top with this. And 
because for what I understand, I believe uh, Frankie Sakai was the was the actor who played Zen. He was a popular comedian, and he was adept and talented at physical comedy. But they never go crazy with it, and I think that's to the film's credit because I think that would have detracted from it. Yeah, and there are a lot of firsts that are in this film. Like this is our first appearance of the natives, and this is our first appearance of the fairies. Is the first film that we're covering in the podcast that's in Tohoscope. And it's the first departure to fantasy. And it's, I believe this is the first Mazer cannons that we get to see. The first Mecha. It's, uh, it's not really Mazer cannons. The Mazer cannons came a little bit later, but this is the first time they were using these science fictional ray guns, ray guns sort of things that are, it's obviously military hardware that does not exist in real life. Yeah. And then this is our first Sekizawa film that we're covering in the podcast. This is the first really light kaiju film that we get to see. And it's the first female kaiju. I mean, this is, this, there are a lot of firsts in this film. Oh, it's such a groundbreaking movie. I am really sad that I did not actually see this until really probably within the last year or two for the first time. I remember uh, a friend of mine, his parents saw this when it, like pretty shortly after it came out and they absolutely loved it. The the English version? Yeah. Back in the 60s? Mm-hmm. Hot dang. <laughs> and they, they loved it. It was It's an extremely memorable film, too. You, it's not really something that you forget. Like, usually something like this is more fitting to, like, a cartoon or, or something that's not live action. But this is actual live action. And, and it Mothra being in a live action film, something so fantastical, it's like, wow, we're getting fantasy and reality just really mixed in. And it's it's not... A movie that I would expect to ever be made in America around that time. I don't think people were willing to take that kind of a risk or willing to mix that much fantasy in. Well, it's not only that, but it's the fact that Mothra is a benevolent kaiju. Yes, she causes destruction, but it's because she she has a goal, and it's a noble goal. She just happens to be a very large creature that's has to plow through buildings or when she's in adult form, her wings create hurricane force winds that unfortunately cause damage. But destruction is not her, uh, is not her intent. She's trying to save a couple of people. Yeah. So it's, it's a totally different reworking. It's like a completely different formula for a kaiju film. Like the source of the drama is the humans almost more than, it is Mothra because they're the ones that put all of these things into play. And so we get to see the humans that some of the humans are bad guys. Since Mothra is not, you know, the bad one in this, it, it, it falls on our villains, our human villains. And it's like, well, the, finally the, the kaiju isn't in the enemy necessarily here. It definitely doesn't, isn't cast as that and doesn't behave like that either, really, except for trying to rescue the, the fairies. I mean, that's, that's not like willful, random, you know, destruction by any means. Regarding Toho Scope, this is a true prestige picture. It's a real spectacle. It has a healthy budget. It's in beautiful color. The wide angle uh, and the scope, it, it really is fitting to kaiju movies. And also it, it fits great and popular actors too, but it seems like the, the ultimate kind of way to film a kaiju film. And American sci-fi movies were being made in black and white around this time, and they weren't given high budgets like this. And I love all the work with the models 
and all the there's a lot of special effects and there's a lot of care put into this film you can tell and i finally when i finally saw the japanese version of this i was even more impressed senchan fukuda as the reporter is one of the best characters in the showa series to me he really helps change the formula a lot just by his presence and his comedic ability his character comes off extremely well i just really like the character when i screened this a few months ago with a couple of friends the the favorite character uh, from the movie for one of my for our for our mutual friend nick was zen he loved that character however i feel that jerry ito as kuraruku nerusan aka clark nelson <laughs> is even better i love this guy he's so wonderfully over the top but not overly so i mean he could have been a cartoon this he could have just been a straight cartoon villain but he toes that line so well and i love it the parts where he reverts to english is really cool and then he he's very good looking he's confident very memorable actor very memorable character too and he's a japanese american actor he spoke his japanese lines phonetically did a great job at it he sounded very convincing and I, I really liked towards the end how he reverted to English when he got all PO'd about the situation <laughs> he was in. And I, I just think he's, he's, he has a lot of charisma. In a lot of ways, he's, he's kind of like Carl Denham from the original King Kong. You know, this very charismatic guy who's known for going on these adventurous expeditions looking for exotic things and then bringing them back. And then when he finds them and he brings them back... He exploits the snot out of them so he can make a quick profit. The big difference, I would say, between Denim and Nelson is Nelson is a far more despicable person. You can Denim at least expresses guilt and grief over what is going on at the end of King Kong. There is no redeeming Nelson. He remains villainous throughout the entire movie. Yeah, killing cops and all. Yeah. And actually, it was another kind of weird parallel that I drew in my head. You know, there's a point in the movie where he's described as a dealer of artifacts. And for some odd reason, given how villainous he is and being described like that, for some odd reason, I started likening him to Bellic from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Am I crazy for saying that? Oh, I didn't think about that. <laughs> That's a good idea, though. There is a similarity to Carl Denham and to him, too. It's, it's uh an interesting character. You know Spielberg had to have seen this movie. I think a lot of people who are in the industry of this have seen this movie especially. It's a pretty big landmark film. We included this film, obviously, because it's it's not only really important, but because a couple episodes later, we're going to have Mothra versus Godzilla, and instead of just having Mothra show up, obviously, we're going we're to cover the, the, intro, the intro film to uh, Mothra, just like we covered the intro film to, with Rodan. Yeah, which is kind of funny because the I was introduced in the reverse order to these kaiju like that. I saw Mothra versus Godzilla way before I ever saw Mothra, but once I found out that Mothra had a solo movie before Mothra versus Godzilla, I really wanted to see it, but it was a pain in the neck to ever find it. So I never saw it until, like I said, within the last year or two. Yeah, and after I saw it, I was like, wow, how come I did not see this earlier? This is such a gigantic great film 
And honestly, I'm hard-pressed to say which one of them is the better movie. I tend to err on the side of Mothra versus Godzilla, but that's mostly because of Godzilla's inclusion. And I do think there were some things that they refined in that one compared to what they had in this one. But both of them are fantastic. Yeah, I like this one a lot just because it broke the mold, so to speak. And we ended up with a a really amazing vehicle for kaiju films. And you can't just, like we've said in the podcast over and over again, you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again. We're not going to keep remaking the original Godzilla and expecting it to be that effective and emotive. Also regarding actors, this is the first time that we see Robert Dunham in a movie in this podcast so far, at least this is our first Robert Dunham movie. And he's really good in these movies. He seems to have a really good handle on Japanese language and culture. He had the Japanese line down that he said really well, which is a, he's not in it till the very end. He's also in Dogora, the space monster from 1964, which we aren't covering in this podcast, at least yet. And he also has a small part in Godzilla versus Megalon. Let's talk a little bit about Sekizawa because he is fundamentally one of the biggest writers in the whole Godzilla series. I would agree with you. And to be honest, this learning more about Sekizawa for me is one of the best things that's come out of doing the work on this podcast. I had no idea that Toho really only had a couple of screenwriters that they went to for their kaiju films. And Sekizawa was easily one of the most prolific. And I really wish I could have had the chance to hang out with, with Sekizawa. He would have been a great guy to have dinner with. Right, Brian? Yeah, I would have had dinner with him. He seems like a very, like, he had a very, like, enjoyable life, like, enjoy life kind of philosophy. And he was, he did a lot. He really had a good handle on satire. He knew how to tell a good story. He knew how not to make the story too complicated. Which was a huge asset here for this movie because... There was originally, because Mothra is actually based off of a serialized novel that was written by three other authors, and so they get story credit for this, but their original story treatment was much more political, it was much more complex. There was a whole section early on in the movie that detailed this very involved mythology for Infant Island and Mothra, and Sekizawa thought that it, the story needed to be simpler, so he took all of that out. And I'll be honest, I don't find myself at any point watching this movie thinking, I wish I knew more about these islanders and the little girls and Mothra. I, I can accept everything as it is. Origin stories are sometimes overrated, and you sometimes don't even need them. I like how Sekizawa, I guess he really had a lot of fun writing these stories. I certainly would, especially having this the kind of tone and the, and the kind of humor that he was able to establish. It's a really revolutionary way to tell a story, and it was, I don't know how big of an experiment or how big of a risk this was, but, I mean, it obviously turned out well for them. I don't think American movie studios knew how to make something like this at the time, at least, in 1961. No. I, I don't remember any movies that particularly had this sort of a mood. This mood and style is the one I think that it is most closely associated with kaiju movies from really any country, but I don't think anyone has been able to fully replicate what Sekizawa did. They might get some aspects of it right, 
but you can't do what Sekizawa did, I think, without having Sekizawa himself. I think Sekizawa knew how to, how and when to make things subtle. I think he understood that dynamic, which you know sometimes not everybody gets it. Every kaiju film up to now, it's been the monster causing all of the problems that need to be solved. This time around, it's the humans doing it. And the monster is definitely a huge part of it, but the monster isn't the one at the bottom line that's actually creating the problem at hand. And so it, it's a definitely a different way to tell a kaiju story, and, and just like we said, you can't tell the same thing over and over again. And by no means is this movie boring at any point in time. I, I it, it kept my interest the whole time. It moves at a very nice pace. It's not... It's not too slow. It's not too fast. It feels like just about the right sort of pacing that you want. It's not to say that you know there's you know, constant action or anything going on with it, but like you said, it's never boring. Yeah, it's entertaining. I don't remember. Does the American version have that like disembodied god voice in it? At what point? <laughs> the, okay. the only you know I remember, what I'm talking about. The only one I remember it's like was like when there was some god voice when like. The Mothra egg was about to hatch. I think. Oh, and I was like, "Where okay. did this voice no. come from?" No, I don't. I don't remember that. And if that, yeah, I don't. I don't remember <laughs> that. Yeah, I don't remember that in the Japanese version. It sounded a little bit cheesy, but I don't know. <laughs> Regarding the story, it's very interesting, very different. Again, we have scientists and reporters as the good guys. And the military is, as usual, ineffective. And then we have the businessman character who's not <laughs> so good, pretty evil character. And we, we see this formula done multiple times throughout the Godzilla series, especially in the Showa series, yeah. where, where we have the media as being the clean people who want to inform the public of what's really going on, and they end up being the activists. And then the scientist, same thing, the, the wonderful character that Hiroshi Koizumi plays. It's a good character, anthropologist. He's out for doing the right thing. Well, and it's not just informing the public. There's actually a point early on in the movie where Zen tries to do the right thing by not reporting on what he sees. He keeps the the, uh, the, the little girl's secret he doesn't want to tell anybody about them because he thought it was his duty as a journalist and as a fellow human being to not say anything about them to leave them alone so people won't bother them it's only after their existence is revealed by nelson that he takes up that activist role but before that he was trying to protect them by saying nothing after that he quickly becomes an activist and so does his photographer, and so does uh, Dr. Chujo. They all realize what's at stake now that this has all come out in the open. Yeah, Zen and also Michi, I would say, although she's a photographer, they're very much the idealized versions of reporters, of journalists. If you think of what would make a good journalist, and it's not the one who's just always out to, you know, find a story no matter what, and, you know, find the shady things to you know to bring to light scandalous things to bring to light this is someone who's actually trying to use his journalism as a means of helping other people and making decisions based on his conscience about what he should and shouldn't say and it, it's it's a refreshing take and not one that you often see in media i would say 
the Peanuts are amazing in this. There are two actresses. Uh, they were also pop stars at the time. They they play the the tiny twin priestesses in this movie. Yeah, and the the actresses were, I guess they were both really good already at saying the same thing in unison. It was part of their act, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so they had just um, already been doing this, so it went rather well with that. But this is one of the times where they are singing a lot of the time, or they're making that. I think it's an organ that's making the making the music for them singing, and, and then you know they they uh, understand it later. You know later on after they figure out what it is. But yeah, I just want to inject here real quick that this is one of the first times where I was watching one of Honda's Tokusatsu movies where I can't help but wonder if he ever secretly wanted to direct a musical because he seems to be fond of singing and dancing numbers in some of these movies and they're actually pretty well done so you imagine a godzilla musical that would be insane (laughs) i think a lot of it was that they it was part of the whole prestige picture part where they were able to get well like in the case of the natives that got extra actors and they were able to spend a little bit more money so they were like okay let's do you know something music and let's do you know something showy and artistic and i think they had it seems like they had enough uh to do a lot of artistic things in this one yeah but you know speaking of the peanuts and singing we would be remiss if we didn't talk about mothra's song which it was uh, first introduced here, and it was used in several other movies later on. It shows up again in Mothra vs. Godzilla and in the in one of the 90s Godzilla films. It's, it's as seminal a piece of music in the Godzilla series as any of the Ifukube marches. What's really ironic about its use here is that the the fairies sing it during one of the shows that Nelson forces them into. But what he doesn't realize is that it's actually part of their little plan to escape because they are calling out to Mothra to come save them. But he doesn't realize this. No, he thinks it's probably just some song. And instead, that's their that's their way to, to attract Mothra to them and save them, yeah. It's hard to overestimate just the, the existence of the Peanuts and their how that affected... Mothra, but also the Godzilla series and the Godzilla movies because Mothra keeps showing up and we have enough times in the Godzilla series where they do show up. When I when I show the movies that have the fairies in them to people who are not exposed to these movies much at all, and I actually tell them before they, like a few seconds before they appear, and I'm like, wait for it. And then the twin fairies appear and the look on everybody's face, they're like, what is going on? What? No way. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, we, we got miniature twin fairies in this movie. And it totally just slaps them sideways. Like, they just totally didn't see it coming. I think I had a similar experience when I first saw Mothra vs. Godzilla, which, I, if I remember correctly, was the first Godzilla movie I saw that, that featured mothra and i mean i knew of the existence of mothra and i knew what mothra looked like but i had no idea that these little twin priestesses were that intricately connected to her so it threw me for a whirl too i think when i first saw it 
it was probably before my teens even, and I was at a a friend of my family's uh, house, and for some reason, I, I think it was Mothra versus Godzilla on either television or something, and it, they just showed up on the screen, and I was like, what? I mean, it's very, it's intriguing. It, it makes you want to watch it more. It makes it more interesting. It, it adds that it's definitely, it, it's a kick in the pants, like fantasy wise, because you get to have all this fantasy injected into the film. And it's like, wow, this is live action and this is actually happening. Whoever had this idea to, to have the twin fairies appearing, it, it's really cool. I think that, I think they knew that, that it's, that it got a very intriguing reaction from the, from the audience. And yeah, and I think as you hinted at, these characters show up frequently in the Godzilla series throughout all of the eras, but I'm going to tell you this right now, I don't think any of those other actresses have been able to equal the Peanuts. These are the best versions of these characters. I think they're who most people think as the as the perfect quintessential fairies actresses. I think, I think they're certainly the best singers out of the bunch, I'll say that. Yeah, they sing well. Twins are are a special thing in Japan because I guess that they're is, rare. Yeah, it's a very rare occurrence to have to have twins being born. Yeah, which so it adds, a, it adds more uh, you know mystery and makes them even more exotic. Yeah, I would it makes say. them more exotic. Yeah, there's a lot of I don't want to say religion so much. I want to say spirituality in this, which when you're dealing with a fantasy story spirituality usually goes hand in hand with those sorts of things and we, we've had monsters the, before other kaiju that were worshipped as gods but this was the first one that I can think of where there's a clear I guess ambiguity as a clear ambiguity that's a bit of an oxymoron but let me explain when before it was just kaiju mistaken for gods in this case Mothra could be exactly that, but it's never clearly stated. And then adding to it is there's a lot of imagery uh, taken from Christianity to uh, to use as symbols for both Mothra, like you know the glyph that's uh, from the island that symbolizes Mothra it looks like a looks like a cross and and things like that. And it, it has a lot of interesting layers and I think a lot of things to talk about. I viewed it as like Mothra is like a nature God for the natives that are there on infant Island. And so I guess like maybe she's like the embodiment of being one with nature or I think the religious significance, I, I think adding religious symbolism to it, I think just enhanced the, the effect that it, that Mothra had on, on us. And I think you, because so many of the other kaiju in these movies, they don't have that kind of a status or, or symbolism associated with them. It makes Mothra seem more special. And the benevolent part, that, you know, that, that fits more into, more fitting to a religion than, you know, some apocalyptic thing that runs around destroying everything. Yeah, and, and, and I might be reading into this a little bit, but... You know, when I was watching this movie, and also when I think about you know Mothra's subsequent appearances, particularly in the Showa series, I was noticing that there are these kind of religious themes that are centered around her, a lot of death and rebirth. It seems like the way Mothra's life cycle works is that the adult Mothra will die, and then there's an egg, and the egg hatches, and then the caterpillars emerge, and they continue the legacy, I guess you could say. So you have that. And then... There's also, I think, a huge theme about faith in this because the natives have an unwavering faith 
in Mothra, even when it doesn't look like Mothra is doing anything. And Mothra is an egg when you know at first, but they're still praying to Mothra and beseeching Mothra to intervene on their behalf and go save the fairies. And the fairies never doubt that Mothra will hear them and come to them. And well, and outside of Mothra, you have you have these other little cues to Christianity where not, not just with the glyph. I mean, you, there's a point where Zen crosses himself like a Catholic. And there are there's uh, some Caucasian priests who talk about leaving things up to the grace of God, and they cross themselves, and they play church bells. They play the the fairies tune that they sing on church bells in order to calm Mothra at the end. I mean, and they actually see a steeple, and it reminds them of the glyph, and that gives them the idea to paint the glyph onto the airport runway and all of that. I mean, there's a lot of these little things that get thrown in there. I'm sure it was just Sekizawa and Honda and company just borrowing what they thought was some interesting imagery in order to tell their story. You know, it's not that they were, you know, religious people or Christian people at that. Some of the forces at play in in this film are, are interesting because they're, they're set up in this movie, but then they're used in, in movies that follow. And one of them would be the criticism of uh, American or in general, American commercialism or commercialism, even not associated with America. And obviously uh, Nelson is sort of the embodiment of uh, the bad parts about consumerism. That's for sure. But then you also have, uh, you have more than that. You have like systems of values that are at conflict with each other. Like you have the the nature driven society of the natives that is played against the modern society that Japan and Realistica are now, and so you have that conflict between the values of the old and the values of the new. You also have a little bit about colonialism, how that's portrayed in in the film. the The natives in this movie they kind of remind me of the natives from king kong i think there's a similarity between those two and i I think there are a number of similarities between this and king kong i think it's sort of the old way that colonialism was was viewed sort of like sort of like king kong where the natives are definitely very primitive and they they're definitely not on equal terms with with everyone else in in the movie and in the story um but we We'll Certainly, be, we'll by be the revisiting Rus- the natives. We'll be revisiting the natives quite a bit yeah, in, the, in the future. The Rolisicans certainly don't see them as being equal with them. They do think them uh, think of them as backward and exploitable, exploitable. Or really, at one point, Nelson just tells his men to gun them down when they're coming at when they're coming at them when they're first trying to capture the the fairies. Right, and he doesn't give a second thought about doing it. And it's definitely the, a connection to nature that the natives have, and, and they definitely re- represent that that side of the, the forces that are at play in this story. So one last thing I want to bring up about the movie is, well, we're going to end on talking about the alternate ending. As mentioned before, Sekizawa uh, made some changes to the film in the, the script writing process. But then there was this really interesting one. The ending that we have in the movie is actually uh, close to what the original ending was supposed to be, but then Toho was concerned about budget constraints and had a new ending written where Nelson did not escape to Rolisica. He instead was, the, the climax instead took place in Japan. 
he kidnapped that boy and took him with him as a hostage. They got on an airplane. The airplane crashed on a mountainside. And then Mothra hatched from her cocoon and then went to the mountainside, confronted Nelson, and then Nelson falls to his death on the, mount, uh, on the mountain and the, the fairies are returned to Mothra. Well, enter Columbia Pictures, who bought the American distribution rights to the film while it was still in production. And mind you, keep in mind, there are still stories out there that said that this new alternate ending had actually started production. They don't know how much of it was actually filmed, but some of it had been finished, at the very least, and they said that they wanted the, the ending to have a bit more of a, a, an international flavor to it. So Toho decided to go back to the original ending that took place in Rolisica, and Columbia gave them a little bit more money in order to make that happen. Well, one of the things that that did was it required a new ending to be written for Nelson, which is why you have the, you know, some would say, kind of anticlimactic fate for him, where instead of being confronted by Mothra or any of the other human characters, he simply dies in a shootout with police after a bunch of Rolissican citizens see who he is and they realize that he's the cause of all the trouble that's come upon them. Yeah, the girl sees him and she points to the car and she's like, it's Nelson! <laughs> yeah. I just... It's, Let's get him! It's just, it's just a weird thing. I mean, I had wondered why the decision had been made to have Nelson die like that. I did think it was a little bit odd, but I just kind of went with it. I was like, maybe it's supposed to be ironic. I don't know, you know, but it's not the thing you would usually you know, see in a film. Usually you want the satisfaction of seeing your heroes confront the villain and they be the ones who defeat him. Yeah. Instead, it's his own his own countrymen who end up taking him down. Yeah, because he's he's brought Mothra there and, and is causing all the destruction. And he's really the, the one causing all the problems to begin with in this movie. And then it ends up being Relisicans who actually, you know, deal with the problem yeah so i mean at first i would have thought well maybe it was meant to subvert expectations but you know, really it was just it was made for more practical purposes and you know it was an ending that had to be put together quickly you know as happens when you're you know working in the film industry but yeah, it's an interesting little bit of trivia that this concludes part two of the podcast we'll now move on to our related topic you're listening to kaiju vision radio for part three of the podcast, we discuss a political, historical, or economic issue that was either brought up by the film or in the film or was going on in Japan at the time the film was released. And for this episode, we chose the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan, also known as just the Security Treaty. We are going to see how we can get this topic to fit right into the film and to go along with the whole realistica thing in this movie yeah because it's a it's a pretty big pretty big issue i mean the the villain the main villain is the our the main actually i think all the villains are from realistica they are and so it's like okay first of all what is this country and then why is it in this movie and what's the significance Rolisica was a fictional nation invented by Sekizawa. It was not in the... I don't believe it was in the original treatment. The original serialized novel the, that Mothra is based on actually had Americans doing the things that you see the Rolisicans doing. So there was, there was no hiding it there. 
But Realistica is meant to be a stand-in nation for both the United States and the Soviet Union, though a little bit more, it seems, on the United States side of things. Some have interpreted Realistica as being intended as a backhand attack against the United States, but I don't see it as such. I don't really see it as that either. Although the thing with these 60s films and some of the early 70s films in the Showa series, we we, we end up encountering some interesting symbolism. And Sekizawa was like brilliant with symbolism. He really knew how to get things across without saying them explicitly. And he was also very good with satire. I think a reason why we have Realiska at all is because at the time there were a lot of really, really big issues going on and post-occupation Japan. Like we, we, we have gotten past the occupation and we have democratized and we, we've done all these other processes in Japan in order to turn it into what it is. Only one or two years before this film was released, Japan was going through a lot of turmoil. And it all had to do with the security treaty that was between Japan and the United States. And so we have what I would say is a culmination of a lot of the things that began after the occupation coming to their going to their logical end. The treaty was originally signed in 1952 at the time that the occupation ended. And what it did was is it arranged for U.S. military bases to be made in Japan and for those forces to be able to protect Japan from outside attacks. And meanwhile, the JSDF takes care of attacks inside. And the treaty has now been, it's lasted longer than any other alliance between two great powers since the 1648 Peace of Westphalia, which is one of the, it's one of the longest standing alliances now. But this was, I think, the time where it was at risk the most. The treaty in 1960 was signed on January 19th in Washington, and it was ratified on February 5th. However, the protests and the action that was against the treaty, that started uh, in 1959, and it lasted like nearly a year. It was a long process. Yeah, that was a a point at which the, the treaty was coming up to be amended. Yeah, there were huge protests. It was a very contentious time. In between the first signing of the treaty and then the re-signing of it in 1960, there was a really big amount of things that happened in Japan that really changed things. And the country got out of the occupation. Their economy went from fragile to absolutely exploding. And Japan wanted to reassert independence rather than be part of the coalition against the USSR or have bases on the territory. They wanted to try to strike a neutral tone where they could be on good relations with both sides, which at the time when the Cold War was really blowing up at this point, it was a very difficult thing to do. That's a tall order. And this was actually the biggest demonstrations in all of Japanese post-war history. The Japanese left wanted to have no bases on Japanese soil, and they also wanted to not have a military, which that I think that would have played out industry if that had actually occurred, be, because due to the due to China and the Soviet Union, this would have literally left Japan wide open for any kind of incursion to occur if they had if Japan had no allies or national defense. The left also had labor unions, student unions, 
and and so and also academia and uh, some of the media, and so there was a lot of concentrated opinion going on with this issue, and it really was Japan trying to decide what its role in the world should be and decided which which side to take, if any, because some said go with China and the USSR. The communists were wanting to do that because they were taking their orders from Stalin and Mao. And, and meanwhile, you had the the more moderate left, which simply wanted the more pacifistic elements of society to, to be cemented and, and established. And they wanted the military gone and they wanted the United States out of the country. And so these uh, forces all were trying to coalesce as a, as a sort of coalition to try to end the security treaty. So at this particular time, there was a lot of socialist feeling in the country, even though Japan at the end of the day was a little bit more of a conservative country fundamentally. But after the occupation, as, as we've said, there was a lot of freedom, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of labor unions and student movements, academia. When you have all of these opportunities to make your opinions known, you're going to use them. And, and so that's what the, the left political forces in Japan were attempting to do. One other thing is with this is that on the left, they were trying to associate socialism with peace. You know, and, and back then, it was a lot easier to do because it was about, you know, we're going to take care of people. We're not going to cause wars. We're not going to get militant. And, and we want peace as an identity. And, of course, there is a huge amount of you know, focus about this issue with Japan because, obviously, they didn't want to get sucked into another war and they wanted to continue building towards the future in, in a peaceful you know, way. And so there we go with the pacifism of uh, Gojira, the original film. But there were a lot of uh, interests who wanted to make sure that the security treaty was derailed. And one of those was definitely uh, the combo of the Soviet Union and China. And what they were doing was they were telling Japan, you know, if you just got rid of this security treaty, then we'd be on really good relations and you should really get rid of this. So in order to, to fix everything, it'll be the solution to all your problems. That way, Japan would be weakened and the United States would be weakened. And this would be uh, advantageous for them to get the United States out of that region. And so there was a lot at stake for those two countries. Part of the strategy, even with uh, the far left, was to try to cause violence with the police in order to uh, escalate the conflict. And so part of this was a desire to not get sucked into another war. Part of it was also the U2 incident actually happened uh, only a few days before the vote on this. And uh, some of the U2 planes were actually uh, flying out of Japan in order to spy on the Soviet Union. So, so not only were all these other issues exploding at the time, but the U2 uh, incident happened, I guess, right when this issue was culminating. Another one was uh, some of the Japanese didn't like the bases and, and the footprint that those bases made, the red light districts around them. In Okinawa. Possibly some of the crime. Yeah, oh, well, I mean, the other bases in Japan too, but mainly Okinawa, yeah. And there was also a, a natural desire for um, among some Japanese that they didn't want to have foreign troops on their soil that could get involved in a very large-scale worldwide war 
and, and you know because they would be exposed to the effects of that. And so that's, I mean, obviously a, a concern. Finally, the last one was that the procedure of this whole thing was done in a very difficult way to get people to really go along with. Uh, the, the treaty was sort of railroaded through the diet, and they, they were trying to stop that process from going because, like, you know, you, if, if you're in representative body and you have this huge, huge issue like this come through, it's like, oh, no, you know, so the LDP that was the majority in the diet, they wanted to get this issue really out of the way, move on and get it done because they didn't they didn't want to dwell on this because the more seemingly that that people would dwell on it, it seemed the more people would be against it. And so they wanted to try to, to get this over with, which then that that attitude on behalf of Prime Minister Kishi, that that backfired and it got people more upset. So why did some conservatives actually support the security treaty? Well, one was the need for military protection and the desire to not be alone in the world because there were some pretty hostile forces around there. And given the fact that the Soviet Union had already started trying to invade Japan at the very end of the war, I mean, I, I, think, I think some Japanese knew that what was possibly going to happen there and that, you know, do, do we want to side with the Soviet Union and China, or do we want to side with the free world of democracies? And uh, I think conservatives were more like, okay, we, we do need some military protection here. We can't just leave ourselves out wide in the open, especially without a, a proper military. There was also the belief that there, you know, neutrality is great and everything, but there's a limit to neutrality. You can't be neutral in everything. There's only so many advantages to that neutrality. Sometimes having allies is a good thing. Also causing violence uh, with the police is not something that a lot of Japanese were really supportive of. E even on the left, there, there wasn't a lot of support for uh, causing violence. Also, since the self-defense forces aren't allowed at this time, they were not allowed to help the United States in any military conflict and so I think there's also there was also a limit to how involved Japan could get in, in a military conflict. I mean, yes, the bases were there, but if if a war did occur, the the SDF would have had no obligation to to start getting into that. And at the end of the day, the Japanese are more conservative, and it's because they just didn't agree with some of the fundamental policies of the socialist and communist parties. And, and so because some of these issues were just out of, out of the norm for Japanese society, it ended up that's why the LDP often kept getting elected was because it, it, the population as a whole erred on the side of conservatism rather than on, on, the, on the left. Also on the positive side of the alliance, even though the bases uh, were detrimental in some ways, there was also the economic benefit of those bases, especially in Okinawa, which was a little bit poorer area. And so those bases did uh, provide a little bit of juice to the economy. I think it was more the footprint of those bases that is what got more people upset, as well as some of the crime that came out and various other just negative social effects of it. Interestingly, there was an added part to the treaty this time around, as opposed to the 1952 version. It was a part where the United States, if there was an internal, uh, like like rioting or or uh, widespread uh, disorder, 
that the American forces would come in and uh, quell those kinds of uprisings. At the same time, they, there was a clause in the original treaty on civil wars and the U.S. Army suppressing civil wars in Japan, and that was actually removed. And so this other clause replaced that. The first rally, this went from April 1959 to July 1960. So this was a long, drawn-out thing that made everybody remember it, which is another reason why Rolisica ends up in the Mothra film only a year after all this is finally put to bed. Uh, but the first rally was uh, 5,000 protesters. And then in June 1959, there was another action, and that was 9,000 protesters. And then across the country, later on, 100,000 people rallied. And it was during the summer and fall of 1959, that was when intellectuals, students, labor unions, and uh, all the other forces on the political left gathered and got all their facts together and really formed uh, coalitions and groups in order to very much express uh, and put a lot of pressure on the population and especially on the diet to not renew the treaty. It was in November 1959 that protesters got onto the grounds of the diet building and they actually ended up storming the diet. 20,000 protesters entered the gate of the diet building. After the diet was occupied, it wasn't occupied for very long, but uh, there was a little bit of a backlash on that because of the diet building being represented as a sort of sacred symbol of democracy. So uh, there was uh, some criticism on the left uh, about going that far. The conflict escalated when the LDP, led by Prime Minister Kishi, they, uh, made, uh, they tried to pass the bill of the treaty revision through the House without the attendance of the opposition parties. So in other words, we, you know, we're here, they're not, but we're going to get this thing railroaded through here anyway and get it over with. That didn't go over well. The LDP ended up calling in 500 uh, policemen and secretaries, male secretaries, into the building in order to clear away the Socialist Party members uh, who were blocking the entrance into the chamber uh, from and were blocking the LDP members from getting in there to vote. And so it was a, a very big scuffle. It was widely reported, and it got a lot of people upset. And I think the, maybe the more that they tried to railroad it through, the, the tougher it got. After the bill was passed, there was a lot of upset uh, sentiment among the Japanese people and the protesters now had something new to protest, and that was, you know, we need to ensure the safety of our democracy because all of these things are occurring without the opposition parties present and they're railroading bills through. And so that galvanized the protesters even more. And so in 1960, on June 4th, there was a general strike, and it was 5.6 million participants in those strikes which that, that is just huge, Na nationwide general strike. In the upper house, it, the bill was just allowed to go into effect without debate and because there was a, um, a deadline on it. And so the upper house didn't even do anything. They just let it go through. And after that, there was a lot of uh, really, there were a lot of very, very upset people. Then General Eisenhower, or President Eisenhower, who was a general of World War II, he was uh, he had to cancel a visit, state visit, 
to uh, Japan, and and it was because they could not ensure Eisenhower's safety, and, and so that was a, a kind of a mark on the on the Japanese for not being able to you know protect a foreign dignitary, and, and having to cancel a visit as monumental as that. There was the possibility that the emperor could have come out and said, "No, this is an official state visit. He's you know he's visiting me. This isn't about the treaty." But they decided just to call the whole thing off and instead just say, don't, don't, bother, don't bother coming. After the bill revising the treaty was automatically ratified in the upper house, that was when 330,000 protesters, the largest number yet, surrounded the Diet Building. And it was only a few days later after that that Prime Minister Kishi resigned. He, I guess he didn't have a lot of popularity anyway at the start of this whole incident, but uh, this really... This really threw everything into uh, tumult, and he had to resign in order to just just get everything out of it. Yeah, a side note to this history, uh, Kishi had been declared a Class A war criminal by the U.S. for his role as the Minister of Munitions during World War II. Uh, the prohibition on Class A war criminals serving in the government expired with the San Francisco Treaty, so he regained significance in the Japanese state and then became prime minister. And also, uh, Prime Minister Kishi was also the maternal grandfather of the current prime minister, Shinzo Abe. Wow. Didn't know any of those things. I wonder how I didn't. Besides the inclusion of Relisica in connection to all of this, there's another connection between all of this and the film and the film Mothra, though it's a bit of an indirect one. As we've mentioned several times, the Sekizawa revised the script the heavily as time went on from the original story treatment he was given. And one of the other differences, as I hinted at, was that the original treatment was more political. There were violent student protests that were going on against Rolisica and against Nelson for his exploitation of the fairies in his shows. And I find that interesting. It, it's actually an element that in some ways actually would have made Mothra a little bit more in the style of Gojira. But it was, an, again, one of those things that Sekizawa felt needed to be removed from the story in order to make it simpler and more entertaining, as he would put it. But it, it's still an interesting idea. It, it was very much a reflection of what was going on in Japan at the time in these very turbulent situations. The security treaty was up for renewal again in 1970, and there were also a lot of protests and some violence then, but uh, it never reached the point in that it did in 1960. And the security treaty is still in effect now. It's one of the longest treaties ever. Fast forward to 2014, and President Obama... Uh, declared as uh, as part of the treaty that any military incursions onto the Senkaku Islands were covered by this treaty. So, in other words, the United States could intervene on behalf of Japan if that was to ever occur. And he was the first sitting president to ever make such a statement. Yeah, and the, the mutual security treaty now is not as uh, divisive of an issue. Also, a year after all of the tumult with the security treaty, in fact, in 1961, the same year that Mothra was released, that was the year that the Berlin Wall was built, and they, the Cold War escalated heavily. 
during the as the Cold War went on, especially in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, things got a lot more serious in the Cold War. But Japan had come a long way by this point in 1960. It was uh, since the occupation. Economic growth from 1960 to 1961, GDP growth was 12%, which is just massive. And inflation was at 7.7% and was on its way down uh, from there. And so inflation was getting under control. And so with all this newfound prosperity and a desire for Japan to become more of a player on the world stage, this was there were so many forces that were uh, all interacting with each other at this point in time in Japan. And it was a very hard struggle to keep the security treaty and be able to try to... It was an issue of identity, really. Like, you know, is Japan going to take, you know, keep the pacifism or or are they going to be realistic more a little bit and, and realize that, okay, there's a lot of danger out there, especially regarding the conflict between the Soviet, you know, the communist forces and the West. It's tough. I, I would have liked to have been there and actually seen what was going on. But, I mean, even at one point, uh, Prime Minister Kishi was actually barricaded inside his office at the Diet by protesters. I mean, this was... <laughs> I, I can't... I can't imagine Paul Ryan being barricaded in his office. Can you? <laughs> I can't imagine something like this occurring on such a large scale in this country, period, which is hearing about all of this, it's it's one of the things that actually makes it difficult to comprehend. I mean, it, it's one of those things that as an American, I'm not sure, especially as a modern day American, that I can fully understand or appreciate. And it certainly had it certainly had a lot of long term uh, implications for the Japanese people and, and their place in the world too. Uh, yeah, a lot of it is stuff that they're still wrestling with to this day. I mean, as we've mentioned before in some of our previous related topics and other episodes, you know, it you know the concept of you know how much do they want to be dependent on the U.S.? Do they want to have their own standing army and be able to you know handle things on their own and and all these sorts of things? You know, it's it's never really gone away. Yeah, it's it's like a flashpoint b- between the the various political forces in Japan, and uh, it was a time I think that it was you know the, the '60s will be a time that we're gonna you know there are a lot more protests in the '60s in Japan too, and and the student movement, but but this one was uh, this one was huge, and it it, uh, it really made a lot of uh, waves. I mean, you don't have a an incident anymore where, you know, a U.S. president can't visit someplace like Japan due to just general unrest. So, yeah, it was very dramatic. And I think when you, I mean, pivot back, I mean, we we're, we go to this interesting city in, in Mothra and it's New Kirk City. I mean, obviously, we know what that is. <laughs> we, I, I mean, I've, I've been to New York City. And I don't remember it being called New Kirk City at any point. I remember New Amsterdam. That's about as close as we can get. But, uh, I mean, and obviously we had the Brooklyn Bridge replica there that, that uh, Mothra knocks down. And and uh, and so it's it's interesting. I think this is one of the few movies in this series that where we actually see an American-ish city getting attacked. Yeah, I can only think of one other one, and it was only a brief scene in which that happens. It wasn't the entire 
climax yeah. of yeah. the movie. Yeah, just tiny. Yeah, it wasn't like a whole foreign, you know, city in, in another country that's that gets uh, obliterated almost by by a kaiju. You know, there really isn't any comparison. This is as close as we get to a, a big role for the the United States actually in one of these films for sure. Even though I'm still pretty sure Rolissica isn't, you know, literally the United States, because I think it's pretty well established that the United States does exist in these movies. But it's still a very interesting symbol, I guess you could say, in a lot of ways. You know, it, it allowed Sekizawa and Toho and Honda and the, really the, the Japanese audiences to wrestle with the issues that were going on at the time, you know, even though the movie itself is still intended to be, you know, light and fun. One other big thing that happened in 1961 would definitely be the testing of the largest uh, hydrogen bomb in all of history. Uh, It was uh, tested by the Soviet Union. It was called Tsar Bomba, and it was tested in the far northwest part of Russia, close to the Arctic. The power of the blast amounted to 1,570 Hiroshima's. And meanwhile, the Castle Bravo test that was the uh, impetus for uh, the first Gojira film was 1,000 Hiroshima's. And so this is 1,500. And the fireball from that nuclear test, Zarbamba, was seen 620 miles away. And it broke windows in buildings as far away as Finland. So this was the massively huge, and it was it was the literally the biggest uh, hydrogen bomb test ever to this day. And here I was going to make a joke about how Zar Bamba sounded like a good name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> so it's another indication that we have a lot of uh, high tension, and this is really the. A lot of things with the Cold War were, were culminating to a, a point of high drama, along with uh, just a year later with the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Bottom line, do you think this film is anti-American? I don't think so. I mean, I know I can see how people can interpret it as such, but I never, as an American watching it, felt like this was some sort of backhanded commentary on uh, on my nation at all. Uh, I maybe I'm naive, but I kind of took it at face value and and saw this as a denunciation of just exploitation in general, regardless of where it comes from. And, you know, Nelson is, you know, the villain and he's not necessarily supposed to be representative of, I guess, a particular people group. And even Rolisica itself kind of goes through these weird phases as the movie goes on because there are points where they're supporting Nelson and then other points where they say, no, we're not supporting Nelson because, you know, they weren't interested in the expedition that he was going on, but then they were going to defend his right to property when he had the ferries and was escaping to Rolisica. But then after he gets there and Mothra shows up, they turn against him. They turn against him and say, you give the ferries back, Mm -hmm. you know, so even... The Rolissican government goes back and forth on what they think about Nelson and this. So really, what it boils down to is Nelson and his henchmen are the are the villains. Yeah, and I think the lack of explicitly mentioning the United States or, or, or just, you know, Sekizawa did a good job at not being 
explicit about things and saying, okay, this is America. And, and then, you know, they could have had Clark Nelson be played by like a European American, you know, like, like as opposed to like a Japanese American where, where they, or they could have had him speaking English the whole time or, or I don't know. It, it could have been a lot less subtle. You know, there's a way to artfully do it and there's a way not to. And, and the optics of it, uh, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's particularly anti-American, like sim- just in a simple kind of way that way. I, I don't really get that. Especially when there are some people who are likening Rolissica and Nelson's treatment of the fairies, weirdly enough, to the occupation, because you know, they're trying to say that the... You know that the United States, much like Relisica and, and Nelson, treated the fairies, but mistreated them, and but they remain true to who they are. That the same thing happened to Japan in the occupation, and it just seems like such a stretch to even say that. I think this is kind of getting out of control with the symbols. I would agree. I think it's more about Japan than, than it was than this film is about us. At the end of the day. All right, Brian. I think that's another episode of Kaiju Vision Radio in the books. In our next episode, we will be. And we'll be getting back on track with Godzilla by looking at the 1962 blockbuster King Kong vs. Godzilla. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara! Sayonara!